Welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First podcast. This is a look at what's taking place inside Bamsey with uh, the individuals served and also outside the organization with some of the societal issues that affect those services and individuals provided uh, with those services. We're joined, as always, the program by Bamsey President and CEO Peter Evers. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Great. Appreciate you joining us. I am Chris Ryan. We're joined by Beverly Williams, who's one of the executive vice presidents of uh, Bamsey for just in just a little bit for a important discussion on race. And I guess that's where we'll start today, where um, it is always a uncomfortable conversation um, for uh, individuals uh, in regards to uh, race. And in my view, um, it's an incredibly necessary conversation and one that should feel you know, more and more comfortable um, to people. It's always a challenge because uh, a lot of times uh, individuals are reticent to engage kind of in the same way as people are reticent to engage in regards to um, discussions about mental illness because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid that um, they're going to offend other individuals. And um, I think that what's most important on these topics is to come at it with good intent. And um, if you're coming at it from a good place, um, you are going to feel good about the conversation that you have. And I think that that is really, you know, first and foremost in these conversations is uh, to have that high quality intent. Absolutely. Um, and I, always, I often think about difficult conversations. And uh, I, I suppose this um, podcast couldn't be accused of uh, taking on light conversations, uh, topics, Chris. And, and, and so we should be talking about things that are difficult to talk about. I always remember somebody said that um, people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying, which mm-hmm. is actually means that at a funeral service, you'd rather be in the pine box than giving the eulogy. And I think that's true. To begin with, and anybody who publicly speaks finds out that the more you do it, the, the easier it gets and the more you understand. And that, I think that's, that's the same analog for having conversation about uh, race and difference and, and where everybody fits in the world. But I like your idea of intent um, because we, when you can turn that around and, and people, when they say things, you think that their intent is good. You just approach the world in a very yeah. different place. I do think, and you know, we'll t- I'm sure we'll talk about this, um, there are different responsibilities for people who are um, in the dominant culture, uh, white folks, uh, in terms of supporting that conversation. It can't just be left to those people who have struggled with oppression for 400 years um, to carry the conversation to the public. Uh, we have an obligation to do that. Indeed. And, yeah, I think, um, you know, when these conversations take place, um, it creates an environment where more individuals feel comfortable having them. And, um, you know, there's always challenges when these conversations uh, come about. But I think that generally speaking, um, you know, whenever people speak publicly and are reticent to do so, it's generally because of a fear of something going wrong or fear of failure. Um, And, you know, once you make a mistake, um, once you you know, use a term, um, you know, which may not be the right one in that spot. Um, Once you do something that's a little bit wrong, but you have the best intent, you'll realize that, um, you know, that's, it's okay. And you will make, 
you will make mistakes. Um, you will say the wrong thing. And in facing that adversity, uh, you really are able to find yourself and your voice during those uh, those time periods. And, you know, it's the biggest problem that I think we have in our society is not when there's um, people that come into a room with differing viewpoints and, you know, will say things that will get the other person upset. The problem is apathy or fear to engage. And instead of having um, a conversation, you assume the worst about another individual or you um, just kind of shut down. The conversations that um, are, are quote-unquote difficult are difficult because of the preconceived notions surrounding those conversations. Once they take place and the walls kind of come down and it's just two human beings going back and forth, it gets really, really easy. And a lot of times we're our own worst enemies in regards to psyching ourselves out in public speaking or in conversations like this because we play out how the other person's going to think, what they're going to say, what's their intent going to be. If you come into it and search for commonality and understanding, um, things generally go in a good direction. Completely. And it's getting there that, um, that is the difficult thing. And it starts off difficult and it gets easier and easier. And I, I, I'm seeing that with some of our listening sessions that we're doing at the moment, that people are, are reticent. They hold back. They want to see what people are going to say. They want to see what the lie of the land is. They, and when they hear there's a forgiveness for good intent, it's a very different thing. Um, but I do think that we all have a duty and, and a need to educate ourselves and you know I think about um, I think about gender and I think about gender fluidity and I think about how really we've become less and less binary um, over the past decade or so if you think 10 years ago where we were with same-sex marriage and DOMA for instance mm -hmm. we've moved a long way and in a sense we need to educate ourselves about that language. Mm -hmm. um, and that is the, the, the modern-day example of sort of overt racist language of 30 or 40 years ago. And if you see it like that, I have a responsibility to incorporate that language into my language with people when I'm, when I'm dealing with them. And that's my good intent. Right. And there's also a fear of being judged um, and a fear of you know, giving out too much information um and you know i think that you know it, it once you're able to become um comfortable with your intent and comfortable with um who you are as as a as a person in these particular settings in a public um you know, speaking setting or a, a something of this nature you start to find yourself um being in a much better place from a holistic standpoint because if you are able to, again, come to a situation with the best possible intent and you are fully embracing that, the reactions of other individuals don't necessarily matter all that much. You know, if you have if you had not intended to say something a certain way or you were trying to find the, the right language, but you're you're in a good place, you'll feel good about the way that you um, you know came into a um a session but i think that it's really i think it's really important you know when these types of conversations take place about race is that you know, you step into it and you basically say i know that everybody here is is here because they wish to be here and they wish to um to speak and convey and therefore 
I believe in their intent. And that gets to a discussion about how, you know, it's best to go about um, doing, uh, you know, diversity uh, training and things of that nature. Should it be, you know, mandatory? Should it not be mm. mandatory? Because if you are, um, if you are forcing other individuals, if you're forcing individuals to be there and they are not there with an open mind to it, I mean, is it making it, is it making their beliefs more hardened? Are they coming in and they're putting a wall up as opposed because they have to quote unquote take diversity training? And I think that that's an interesting you know, topic of, of conversation and perhaps, you know, subvert aspects of, um, of culture and understanding are better than saying we as a company are mandating, you know, that you have to have racial diversity training. And then you have people going there and they're like, maybe they take something away. It's, I think it's a difficult topic because I think, you know, in order for there to be true change, the intent has to again be there for the individual to want to take in the information, to want to be introspective and to um, change their beliefs and uh, challenge their beliefs. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a really different. I mean, there's a big, that's another conversation entirely, but I would say that there are some things that are man mandatory for people to um, to take, and that would be CPR, for instance. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't have somebody come in and say, yeah, I don't really want to take CPR. Right. <laughs> right. Well, would, if, if you think about the damage that um, that um, language and race can uh, can be, why not be mandatory? Why not expose people to that? Because... I think it's as important as CPR, but that's another argument. That's that a really good point because, I mean, the culture of an environment, if it is defined by um, sexism, racism, misogyny, uh, you know, homophobia, then you're losing some of your, your best people. And a lot of times, um, you know, those things will kind of go beneath the, the radar because in some ways they're expected by uh, minorities that they're going to have to uh, deal with this type of an, an environment. And that's something we've heard a lot of is that it's just kind of expected. And if they want to um, achieve what they wish to achieve in the workplace, that's something they have to battle through. If a, a female uh, it will have to battle through sexism and um, either overt or subvert uh, sexual harassment during a, a job. And um, but they may not, they may leave as a result of it, but they're not necessarily going to report it to That's superiors. That's right. Yeah. So the creation of a, of a welcoming, um, inclusive workforce, I think, is one of the most important things that you can provide as an employer. It's going to hand it over to, to Peter now, who is going to introduce our guest for this week's edition of the podcast. It's my pleasure today to introduce Bev Williams, who is our Executive Vice President for Behavioral Health Community Services, which covers a big swath of services here at BAMSI. So uh, welcome. Welcome, Bev. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, and thanks. So today, I think, um, on the docket, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, our racial justice uh, racial and social justice uh, committee work that we've been doing really over the past three or four months, um, but also a little look back at, uh, at where Bamsey was and where Bamsey wants to be. Um, we this week, later this week, we'll be releasing a video which is a um, which is a panel discussion that we had about two or three weeks ago that Bev you so wonderfully participated in, uh, where we sort of really attempted to open up a discussion around race, around social justice so that there was a 
more of a feeling of inclusion in the agency. And when you look at um, the staff that work at BAMSI, it is a, an extraordinarily diverse group of people from, I don't know, somebody once counted the number of countries that uh, that are represented at BAMSI. And we should do that again, Bev, because we should, we should put a big map out there and sort of say, look, here's, here's where people from the world are that are working at BAMSI. I think that'd be a great yeah. idea. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when we do that, we have to stand behind that and we have to and we have to say we are listening to everybody because everybody has a voice and everybody has an opinion. And um, hopefully our listening sessions will get us, um, you know, uh, a few more voices at the table. So you were involved in that process, um, Bev, and, um, you know, I'd love to hear from you some of your initial thoughts of uh, how Bamsey has been um, really sort of sort of getting into a position where we can have uh, a deeper and more uh, meaningful conversation. I think, thank you, Peter. I, um, this is a conversation uh, that is near and dear to me as a West Indian born <laughs> um, female who it does race is, does matter. And it does matter very much. And I am impacted with it. Um, I do appreciate the way Bamsi has responded to the racial injustices as have been highlighted in our country lately. I do believe the listening sessions have really encouraged staff to pause and think and given them permission to talk and to share with each other how they're feeling, how the impact, personal impact, and for some people, questions, because they haven't thought about race. They haven't had to think about race and racial injustices in the past. So that has been really um, wonderful. We've had our professional development and training program. They've put out a lot of programming from the 15-day challenge um, to articles and blogs that are really helping and encouraging staff to join and to have conversations, village forums. We've also had program directors attending external forums where they're learning and bringing back information. Our listening sessions with you, Peter, and um, the Racial Justice Committee that was formed, that has brought in a lot of information and are given a lot of guidance for which we now need to go back and look and see and come up with some next steps. And we've begun to do that and have um, designated subcommittees to work on um, even some of our policies and procedures we've had on our language. What sort of language has been um, seen as offensive, unknowingly so? So we, it's intri- I'm intrigued. I'm really intrigued and excited to see what we do next and where we go next. This work is fascinating um, because you know we have seen 400 plus years of wrongs in this nation in regards to fully embracing and addressing equality. And there are a number of different ways in which, in my view, we have to go about righting those wrongs. The first piece is to have a group of individuals identify the wrongdoing, um, signify what changes are going to be made, and then go about changing them. Now, obviously, there's 
things that can be done within an organization, and there's societal issues as well. One of the another key piece is to um, get a collective buy-in from uh, a nation, and in a lot of ways, there is still individuals who are, and we can see examples of this in a day in day out basis, who will say there is no problem. There, there is no problem. I don't, I don't need to uh, go to sensitivity training. I don't need to um, to hear about uh, things that have taken place that have nothing to do with me. Everything is, everything is fine, and I don't really want to listen to um, someone tell me that there is issues um, to address and. I'm interested in your takeaways in regards to um, to that, because if you look at the work of um, whether it's Dr. Martin Luther King or John Lewis or others who have um, given their lives in many ways for uh, racial justice and equality, you know, there is a significant aspect of trying to win over individuals um, who have that philosophy that there is – they don't want to hear what's what's going on. They want to bury their head in the sand. They don't want to um, to be introspective about their thinking, and they want to stick with their thinking. How do you go about, in your view, and this is a big question, um, from internally or externally uh, at Bamsey, trying to hit those people? And because there has to be an intent, in my view, and a desire for people to want to. Um, People like myself, white people, <laughs> Peter and I, to, there has to be an intent. Um, there has to be an introspection for us to to want to change. And um, how do you create an intent or a desire in circumstances when it may not exist? Yeah. So, you know, there are several questions there and several answers. I, I want to say that it's often hard to get that collective buy-in. I do appreciate people who openly resist, as opposed to those who um, may not say anything and pretend or stay under the radar. So, and, and, and I mean it, because for people who say, well, I don't think there are any differences, I don't see color, I don't, they allow me opportunity to step in and share and um, just connect with them as opposed to somebody who I think is with me that they're not really there, they don't get it, and they have their own feelings that they do not talk about. So again, I, I do see the huge value in communication, talking, forums, sharing. It, it's so valuable because that's how we... That's how we connect. And so for somebody who's saying, I don't see it. No, I don't think there's racism. I'm not racist. I'm not. I try to sit and connect their reality with, with their real life experiences. So, for example, even one person shared that she called a parent and the parent said to her, or no, she talked to the child, I'm sorry. And the child said, I just want to be able to live. She also has two young children. And as a white female, she said, I broke down in tears. And she was telling me the story, and she was crying, saying that she knows her kids, her two daughters, are not concerned about their life. Mm -hmm. 
and that they don't have to have that sort of fear and anxiety in their world. And that, for her, connected her real strongly with the uh, persons of color experience, because this was the child who was talking to her, was an African-American girl. And it just absolutely stood out to me, verified that that's what we need to do. Have people hear stories, have people hear and connect from their world. That's the only way we're going to bridge gaps. It's really understanding. Because for some people, they really do believe they're not racist. They really believe they don't see color. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Beverly. Those kind of stories are the things that connect us as human beings. Um, and oftentimes, I think uh, in this country, we don't spend enough time with people who are different from, uh, from mm -hmm. each other. Um, and that's one thing I think that the listening sessions are really drawing out. One of our uh, staff sent a quote the other day, which was from Desmond Tutu, which really spoke to him. Of course, I can't, I can't quote him uh, here, but really, what he was thinking, what he was speaking about, was the damage that l that language can do—that it can be weaponized and it does. It's not neutral. And hearing how language, in some cases, can be detrimental to somebody through a microaggression or or through a a statement. Um, that is uh, even unknowingly uh, insulting to a person. It's really important for people to hear that and understand that. I agree with you. Those people who don't speak out uh, are the most uh, difficult to connect with. Yeah. Um, and because they're not engaged. Yeah. And that's the real, the big point that Bev was making is that if you can have a conversation with someone, you can start a conversation, that's how you can you know, potentially win someone over, make them see the light. If a person is shutting down and just saying that they're not going to engage, you can't have that conversation, and that person is going to stay in the space that they're, they're in. That's right. And, you know, Bev, I, you and I talk um, a lot about family and um, my mom had, uh, <laughs> I, I talked to you about my mom a lot, but um, my mom had a situation this weekend when two younger men, my mother is 86 year old, years old and quite infirm, uh, but is very um, proud of the way she dresses. She dresses up every day as if she's going out, although she can't go out anywhere. And the two gentlemen who were going to do the work on the lawn knocked on the door and the younger man said to my mom, wow, you look smart. And <laughs> she was devastated because she felt as if she was being talked down to as an elder, elderly person. But my mother, um, not being one to hold back, let him know that, that actually that was quite <laughs> insulting. <laughs> you can imagine <laughs> how that went. Um, but, but the young man was, said, I am so sorry. I never meant to say that. I didn't mean it to come over like that. And, and that that's a really key point about communication and that we, I think that this is, again, getting back to the importance of these conversations, Peter, is that a lot of times we leave words out there and we judge their intent and we judge their intent and we don't ask what their intent is. And um, sometimes, as you know, we were, Bev was talking about on the panel, there's, um, and I've heard this mentioned many times over, that there's language barriers and things may mean something in a certain language and not be offensive but in even in different um dialects yeah. and in different aspects of this country there's different things that mean different things to different people 
And if you just let it sit there, that's where the there can be real hurt, and you can and you judge the intent as opposed to knowing the intent. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know, Bev, if you wanted to follow up on that uh, on on that issue about people making assumptions about people and running with them instead of exploring and and wanting to find out about people. Yeah, I, I, you know, and to to the language and the accent portion of this, I know this came up hugely in the listening sessions that we had. It was also came up in some external forums I've attended. And to the point where one person shared, and and this is somebody at a very high level at her own agency, she went for medical care. And the doctor pulled her in, and they shared how they were going to treat her, the plan, the treatment plan. Stating, oh, by the way, you know, so we gave you this middle option because we know the next, you know, there is another level, but it's, um, it's not really affordable. Yeah, she's a black woman yep. with an accent. There's your assumption. And yep. again, that's exactly yep. and the assumption language assumption yeah, color absolutely um, yeah. Yeah. you know and and it was powerful and she was sharing how painful it was for her but even more so concerning for other families in terms of is there equity in health care then yeah which i think is an entirely different debate that we could have that for hours and hours because no there isn't <laughs> I want to touch upon something that I think is really, really important. And, you know, growing up, um, being labeled as a racist was just about as bad as um, you could get. I mean, there's probably in the top five of things that you could be labeled as. And um, to some extent, I feel like the word is used so often now that it's kind of lost some of its um, meaning, if you will. Um, but I, I want to have a discussion about what that, what it means to be, you know, racist and, um, how we should view individuals who are racist. Cause there's always been that debate is, is a racist, a bad person is a person, a bad person. If they believe that their race is superior to another human beings. And I'm curious, you know, I'm going to put a lot of, a lot of burden on here, on you Bev here to, um, you know, to, to, to discuss this, but, um, you know, it, I think of, you know, relatives um, who have, when I was a kid, would say racist things. And um, I think that we all know people or around people who have, who have said racist things or homophobic things or misogynistic things. And, you know, we try to figure out whether that defines them as a person. And, um, you know, I'm curious, you know, Bev, as to your thoughts as to how we should treat individuals who say racist things. Should it be a, a teaching moment? Um, a lot of times I think we would, as you were talking about before, just kind of, um, you know, shutting down and not engaging. You don't want to fight with Uncle Steve at the uh, Thanksgiving Day table and create a whole ruckus where your mom's mad at you for being mean to Uncle Steve. Well, Uncle Steve just said something was racist. <laughs> and I called Uncle Steve a racist. And uh, now the family's all fighting with one another. So in your view, um, you know, and having 
studied individuals who have um, pushed forward uh, racial justice for many, many years, generally it seems that their view is engagement, where you don't condemn the individual, you condemn the action or the word. Um, what are your feelings on how we should address uh, racism as whites? Yeah. I, 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 the, the term that comes to me is ethnocentric. I, I refer to people as ethnocentric as, a, as in terms of being racist. I, I think it helps me to have more tolerance in even trying to connect with them and respond to them and come up with a response so that they, they're seeing the world from their ethnicity, their culture, their race. And is something definitely wrong with that? Not necessarily, but I want you to see a little bit more than your will. So that's my approach. Um, it, it's why sometimes I'm a little cautious at the term um, allyship because I, I, I think people hear that to cre and sometimes create with it what they call a melting pot. And a melting pot doesn't always mean that you're not just focused, that you just... So sometimes that means for some people putting me in a larger fish tank, but I'm still in a fish tank. Yeah. But I'm giving you something, Beverly, because I'm, you know? Yeah. So I, how do I, you know, so I go back to ethnocentric. And how do we help somebody who's ethnocentric? It, we also help infuse probably a bit at a time, something in, help enlarge their world, bite-size, enough, teaching moments, you know, just get some of those moments. It's not going to change overnight. It cannot. For many people, asking them to think differently is asking them to go against all their parents have taught them. You're going against the grain of their parents, mm -hmm. what their community in growing up has taught them pulling away sometimes from their family, their spouse, what they, they learn. And so it, it's really recognizing, just as it's painful for me to deal with, it's probably very painful for that person too. So it, it has to be gradual. It cannot happen overnight. I think, I think that's probably the best answer I've heard for that question, Bev. I really do. I mean, it, it's absolutely right. There's, you know, you're peeling away hundreds of years worth of belief systems. And, you know, um, it, it doesn't happen overnight. But the more that people are exposed to different ideas, um, the, the more they, they can be accepting of people that look different from them. And I think, I think my last point was we can't leave it up to black and brown people to make that argument. Right. Um, and I know what you mean about allyship, but there's got to be co-combatants. There's got to be yeah. white folks who are willing to put themselves on the line. Yeah. Um, and you sort of move into a co-combatant when you put when you risk, you know, some of your own possible safety. And I think that's what we need to do. No, I think um, you make a really good point about culture. And I can be proud of my Irish. Uh, American culture, but that doesn't mean that I have to exude that that is the best culture. Um, you have to be knowledgeable of all cultures as much as possible and be uh, accepting and also understanding 
of other individuals, diversities, and and backgrounds. And once you get to a place where you have a um, you have superiority conflict uh, complex in regards to your upbringing or your culture, um, that's where you kind of shut off and are unwilling to you know, accept uh, others. And I think that that's you know, largely problematic. And I agree with, with Peter. I think that on whether it's on this issue or um, many other issues, in many circumstances, white males find themselves in a very advantageous position. And um, it is up to us to not pull up the ladder of equality, but to extend the ladder of equality to others, whether it is um, whether it is females, whether it is um, individuals who are minorities, and because for too long the exact opposite has happened, where there's been discussion, um, there has been the right words that have been said, but when it comes time to provide opportunity, we lift the ladder instead of uh, dropping the ladder. So. I don't know what the proportional allocation of responsibility is, but I do feel that there is a tremendous role um, for uh, white males to uh, to play in um, the march for uh, for equality, whether it's under the law, whether it's in practice, uh, whether it's in business, um, or in um, you know individuals' daily lives. Yeah, yeah. I listened to um, or read an interesting article by. Chris Hendricks, and he is, I think, Italian, white male, and he talked about being young and playing the game King of the Hill. I don't know if any of you played that, but it's where you stood on a high rise, and your aim was to stay up there, so you would would have to make sure nobody pulled you down, and nobody else came up. And he talked about the importance of weight and gravity for the person who was on top of the hill versus the person who was trying to climb up. And, you know, as I I connect that, you know, there's a lot of power that a white person in America has right now in helping in this battle. And it is a battle we're going through. And I, I do see that we, we need your weight. We need your gravity as we help this process, as we go through this process. As we can't, we're trying. We're trying to climb. But it, it's also um, frightening for the persons who are on top of the hill. It's, it's really frightening for them because would they be displaced? Yeah. Would yeah. they be toppled over? Yeah, it's so true. And, uh, you know, just to finish, and I'm I'm not being political, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked, um, I think a couple of years ago, how many people she would be satisfied with in terms of women on the Supreme Court. And she said, all of them. And the reporter said, well, that's unreasonable. She goes, well, for the last 250 years, it's been all men. Is that unreasonable? Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought yeah. that was such a, of course, uh, I happen to be a big fan, but, but I thought that was such a poignant thing to say. When, even, even when we're talking about privilege, just consider privilege um, as something you had before that somebody else didn't. And that really redefines for the, for the other person. 
So, so Bev, I, I, I know we're pressed for time and, and you're always busy, but I wondered if we could spend a couple of minutes talking a little bit about our community work, um, especially in these times of COVID when, you know, I, when I, I was actually talking to a staff member who had uh, contracted COVID and, and had missed a number of weeks of work and she's just coming back into the workplace and really was just talking about how difficult it has been to support her family and this is somebody who's fully employed uh, by BAMSI but you know one of the things that BAMSI is very proud of is this uh, providing a safety net in our community and I wonder if you could talk about a couple of programs that have become really important in supporting families at the margins over the past six months with COVID because I know there's a few of them. Yes. So the, the first program I do want to talk about is our helpline, the BAMSI helpline. And the BAMSI helpline is not only available to persons outside BAMSI, but we are also encouraging our employees who needing assistance to please outreach to us. We support in areas of food, clothing, um, mortgage, assistance, rent assistance, um, utilities. We, um, there are some people who even, and when we talk about utilities, even if it's negotiating with companies as to deferring payments or discounting payments, we spend a lot of time just trying to seek additional resources. And that's a huge part of Helpline. Our WIC program, similarly for young mothers with children, really working towards providing formulas and diapers, which are really expensive. And, you know, at one point, diapers were even hard to come by during the heightened parts of this pandemic. So, again, we really want to help employees also. Our Richmond Counseling Center has also been providing group therapy for employees in programs who would really um, welcome some sort of support, sometimes just needing a forum to vent, just and to share. What we also, and some of us from the um, Behavioral Health and Community Services last week, attended a collaborative in which we're looking at childcare services, and when I say childcare, not just for young children, but school-age kids, where some of our employees are working from home, others, they're working in the, on the workplace, but they have kids at home who are struggling, trying to do schoolwork, parents not understanding or knowing the work, and so trying to see what are some ways we can offer, what could we offer in support of that. So it's an ongoing process trying to really see what are the needs and understand the needs, respond to those needs, and really make um, a difference for not just the persons we serve, but our employees. Yeah, I think it's such a good point. And, you know, I was just reflecting actually on Helpline. It's this tiny little program that punches so far above its weight. You know, when you mm -hmm. think about mm -hmm. the amount of people that it, that it has helped over the years, um, it, it is quite remarkable, and even even to the point where um, our senator, uh, Senator Michael uh, Brady, who was on this show three weeks ago, 
um, called um, when Faith was retiring in a panic, uh, saying, what are we going to do with, you know, we need this program. This program is part of the lifeblood of, of, uh, of, of Brockton and, and beyond. And, in fact, the mayor said it uh, a couple of weeks ago as well. And um, I know that you didn't mention this, Beverly, but I just also wanted to acknowledge that um, we have been providing, we, the COPE program, have been providing um, help in terms of the stop the spread, uh, providing a testing site, uh, I think, three days a week for people in uh, in our community as well. So BAMSI is utterly um, dedicated to fighting this um, this ep- this pandemic in every way that we can. And I know that people have gone so far above and beyond to provide those services. We have. And, and you know, we nothing that I've said is um, exclusive. We actually, as the needs arise, we're looking at them and trying to bring some ways to address them. So we welcome employees just even outreaching with a need or a challenge that they have. And we'll try to find if we can help them ourselves, really looking. We're all about information and referral and really will seek to provide some sort of support. Yeah, and I, I think that's I, I, I think that's absolutely true, and uh, you know, and and I think we should just pause for a second as we finish to recognise that mental health is such an important part of the recovery from this pandemic, uh, and the way that our Whitman Counselling Centre and many other of our programmes have been providing support to people's mental health um, has just been remarkable, and we still need to do it, and we'll need to do it beyond the end of this pandemic whenever that might be so bev i just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show today and uh and 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 sharing with us some very personal thoughts and i i I recognize that that's a very brave thing to do so thank you so much thank you thank you chris thank you you've been listening to bamsey's humanity first podcast here and we'll be back with you with another edition of the podcast next week Mm -hmm.